If you're here for the first time, greetings. My name's Mark. I serve as one of the elders here, and it's my joy to bring the sermon this morning. If you're watching online, especially if you're unable to assemble because of COVID, we love you, miss you, and uh, want to greet all those who are um, watching the live stream. Uh, today, we get to start a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. I'm really excited about this. We're, uh, the series is simply called Follow Me. Um, it's going to be a, a lengthy series in the Gospel of Mark. And I just want to mention a couple of resources for you as we get started with the series. First, I want to encourage you to read the Gospel of Mark just repeatedly as we're going through this series. And one tool that might be helpful is we have a couple of these journals uh, in the bookstore. Um, these are just, it's just the Gospel of Mark on, on one page and then a blank page on the other side. There's two different kinds. So if you want to read and take notes uh, as, as you go, those are in the bookstore. And if you'd like a little background information, a little un more understanding about what's going on in the gospel, um, this Mark for You by Jason Meyer is part of this uh, series that the Good Book Company puts out. I found these to be very helpful. It's not exactly a verse-by-verse -verse commentary, but it's a guide that goes section by section. And it'll help you understand uh, what the author's intention is, but then also how to find Christ in it, and what you might be able to do in, in application devotionally as well. So just want to mention those as some helpful resources. As, uh, as we get started, as I said, this is going to be a lengthy series. There are going to be more than 30 messages in, the, in uh, this series, Lord willing. And so today's message is going to be different from uh, the kind that we usually bring. Today, I'm going to give an overview of all 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to get oriented just with a couple of key verses in the beginning. We'll get an overview because I want you to have a sense of, of what this gospel is all about and, and why we should read this gospel. Why read the Gospel of Mark? Uh, and, and this is going to get awkward as we do this series because my name is Mark, the gospel writer is Mark. I didn't write the gospel. It's just a little confusing. So I'll try to keep things clear who we're talking about here. Um, the gospel writer, Mark, urgently wants us to see who Jesus is. He wants us to understand what it means to follow him. And then he wants us to join him as fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. So that's what's going on in, in, in this gospel, this, this book. And I hope this first message will orient you to this Really exciting book. It's fast-paced. It's action-packed. And maybe like there's this great meal prepared for you and you get to have a few sample bites before you sit down for the whole meal. Maybe that's what this message can do is just sort of orient you to, to what's coming. I'm not going to answer all your questions about the Gospel of Mark today. We're not going to get to all the topics that come up in the Gospel of Mark. But I hope you'll be stirred to read and or listen to this Gospel this good news. So we're going to start this morning with chapter 1 and verse 1. That's Mark telling us what his book is about. And then chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that's Jesus telling us what his ministry is about. So verse 1, chapter 1, Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hear it again. This is Mark announcing to us what he's doing. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God 
and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want to pray. And as, as we pray, I was reading in my devotions this morning in, in Mark chapter 7. And um, at the end of the chapter, Jesus healed a guy who couldn't see and couldn't speak. And it says, after he had done this, they were astonished beyond all measure. The people who witnessed Jesus, they were astonished beyond all measure. And they said, he has done all things well. I'm going to pray that would be our experience. So let's pray. Oh, great God, thank you that you're the God who is there and not silent. You're the God who speaks. You have spoken in your son, Jesus Christ. Come to earth. And as he was present on earth, working his ministry, people were astonished beyond all measure. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Christ and be astonished at his glory and his greatness and proclaim, surely he has done all things well. Would you satisfy our hearts in Christ? Would you dazzle us with Christ? Would you thrill us with Jesus Christ that we might join the company of the astonished and those who delight in him. Amen. Harry Hopkins was an advisor to President Roosevelt during World War II. Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and Churchill got to know Hopkins through a series of meetings that Churchill and Roosevelt were having. And as Churchill got to know Hopkins, he discovered a man who was physically weak, but remarkably wise and insightful. Churchill writes of Hopkins that he had a frail and failing body. He was, Churchill writes, a crumbling lighthouse from which there shone the beams that led great fleets to the harbor. Now, because of his ill health, Harry Hopkins had limited time, limited hours in which he could function in a given day. And so there was always about him an urgency to everything that was happening and a clarity about him, so much so that Churchill nicknamed him Lord Root of the Matter. Lord Root of the Matter. Because to be around Hopkins, there was never time to just fiddle around and make small talk. You had to get to the root of the matter. You had to get to the heart of the matter. I think we're going to have the same experience with the Gospel of Mark that Churchill had with Harry Hopkins. Mark gets to the root of the matter. Why read the Gospel of Mark? Mark is, is communicating like Hopkins. There's no time to waste. There is urgency here. And, and I think if Mark were here with us this morning, I think he would say, I want you to get three things going here. I want you to see who Jesus is. I want you to hear Jesus' call to discipleship. 
And I want you to respond by following Jesus and by urging others to do the same. See who he is, hear his call to discipleship, and respond personally, and then call others to do the same. Spread this news. Mark's gospel is probably the first written of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was probably written first. Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples or apostles of Jesus, but early witnesses tell us that Mark writes using the eyewitness accounts of the apostle Peter. This gospel, the gospel of Mark, is the shortest and most action-packed of the four gospels. Mark's favorite word is this word immediately. You'll see that. We won't uh, uh, drop into it here today, but as we get going with uh, the first half of, uh, or first part of chapter one next week, you'll see this word immediately shows up over and over because there's this sense of things are happening and they're happening fast. And then we move on to the next thing and the next thing. There's this urgency. Mark is proclaiming good news to us that in Christ, God is here and he's come to save. So come and follow him. So I hope through this message, to, to just stir an interest and an understanding in this gospel. When, and, and we're going to work this under the, under the question, why read the gospel of Mark? Why read this gospel? So as I said a moment ago, the first reason is to see Jesus. I'm going to spend the, 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 the most time on, on this point. To see Jesus. Back to chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, let's just, let's just park here for a moment on, on verse 1. We're going to just consider verse 1 for a bit, and then, then we're going to broaden out to some themes that take us through the whole, the whole gospel. Mark announces to us right here <clears throat> what he's up to. He, here's a one-verse introduction to his book. He says it's the beginning. Right? Where do you start a story? Well, that's obvious. You start with the beginning, right? So he's doing what good writers do. He's beginning at the beginning. But there might be different ways to think about a beginning, couldn't there? So let's uh, take Queen Elizabeth as, as an example. Recently, last Thursday, Queen Elizabeth died at age 96 after 70 years as monarch of the United Kingdom. She was a remarkable woman in many ways, and there have been already many retrospectives about her, and I'm sure there will be many biographies written about her in the future. How might a biography begin a story, a biographer begin a story about Queen Elizabeth? Well, one place to start could be her ancestors, right? The lineage. She is part of a line of Monarch. So you could start there. Another would be with her birth. She was born in 1926, so you could start the story there. Another might be with her inauguration as queen in 1952. Those would all be different kinds of beginnings, and we actually see something like, in the like that in the Gospels. Mark doesn't start with the genealogy of Jesus, but Matthew does. He starts with Jesus' ancestors. Mark doesn't start with stories about Jesus' birth, but Luke does. He gives us two chapters of background to, to Jesus' birth and, and, and early life. Mark jumps in at a, be, at, at a different place. He notes or, 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 or marks the beginning, if you will, of, of, of this gospel and the story that he's going to tell us about Jesus right here with the announcement by John the Baptist of Jesus' appearing. By the announcement by God the Father that Jesus is his son, and then 
Jesus emerging into his public ministry. So the beginning that Mark takes us to is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's already 30 years old. He's, he's in, in, incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, as we said, said a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed. But Mark starts with this public ministry. That's the beginning that he points us to. And it's the beginning, he says, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? What's the gospel that Mark is talking to, referring to here? The word gospel, Greek word euangelion, the word means good news. And just pause. Isn't that great? Because boy, do we get a lot of bad news. So here are 16 chapters of good news. What a feast. Isn't it a a gift to be able to come together on the Lord's Day in, a, in the midst of a world of bad news and week after week celebrate good news in Jesus Christ. We love the Lord's Day. We love the Lord's Day gathering. And Mark is going to just lay out for us a 16-chapter feast of good news about Jesus Christ. Now, as Mark is writing in the first century, he's writing to... Romans and Greeks and Jewish people, there are a variety of people who are going to read this, but all of them would have had some understanding of this word euangelion, this idea of glad tidings or good news. There's an ancient inscription from the first century that's been found that declares the Roman emperor Augustus's birth to be, quote, the beginning of the good news for the world. Sound familiar? The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. So Roman people and, uh, and people in the Roman Empire would have, would have understood that Augustus' birth was celebrated as the beginning of good news. There was gospel news about the emperor. Jewish people would have understood good news, at least through the prophet Isaiah, who says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And so this word was in play... It wasn't a completely new or foreign word. What is the news that Mark is going to point us to? Well, we're going to keep, need to keep coming back to work our way through this series to, to grasp all of that. But Mark gives us the key right here in verse 1. Do not miss this. The beginning of the good news of what? The beginning of the gospel of who? Jesus Christ. This gospel is of Jesus Christ, he says. Now, linguistically, that means two things probably at the same time. One, it's from Jesus Christ. Jesus will come proclaiming good news, as he does in verses 14 and 15. And it's good news about Jesus Christ. And with both things in view, this means, hear this, this is so important. The gospel is not primarily a set of doctrines. The gospel is not primarily a moral code or a set of behaviors. What is it? The gospel is news about a person. It's news about Jesus Christ. Hear this. Christianity is fundamentally and primarily about a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good news. How can Jesus proclaim the gospel of God, we see in verses 14 and 15, when he hasn't died on a cross yet? 
I thought the cross was the good news. Well, it is, but it's good news because Jesus Christ is the one who died on that cross. And when he stands there, he is the good news. So if we are to grasp and appreciate the good news, we must always have Jesus Christ front and center. And I love that that's where Mark starts. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has come to give the greatest gift of all. What is it? It's himself. In Christ, we can be reconciled to God. So let's think more, a little more about who this Jesus is. Who is this Jesus that's the object and source of this good news? Maybe just pause and ask, who, who do you think Jesus is? You may have a variety, there may be a variety of ideas in a, in a, in a room like this. There, there are certainly a variety of ideas as we circulate out in the world. I, I noticed that many times the way that I hear Jesus' name in, in traveling around, visiting with neighbors or friends or restaurants or wherever is, I often hear Jesus' name used as a curse word. That's often how his name is used. Some people think of Jesus and they think he's a prophet. Or others think, well, he's he a teacher. Sometimes people focus in on his miracles. Often people think of Jesus as really a good guy. Good example. A good model for how to love your neighbor. Who does Mark, the gospel writer, tell us Jesus is? What's the picture that Mark paints. We're going to walk through the gospel of Mark and I want to highlight some of the, the themes that bring Jesus into view. Mark's going to point us to Jesus' miracles. He raises the dead. He feeds thousands with a few scraps of food. He delivers people from demons. Mark's going to point us repeatedly to Jesus' divine authority. When Jesus encounters an unclean spirit, he can say, be silent and come out of him, and that demon has to obey. When people see this, you know what they say in chapter 1? They say, what is this, a new teaching with authority? One of the things people notice about Jesus is the unusual, unprecedented, unique, and remarkable authority that he brings with him. Jesus is on a boat during a storm. He awakes and what does he do? He rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace be still. What happens? It's still. There's a great calm. Who can do that? God can do that. God controls the weather. Jesus has that divine authority. He has the divine authority to forgive sin. So we'll see him doing miracles. We'll see him functioning in this divine authority. We'll also, Mark will enable us to listen to his teaching. Now Mark is, is oriented to action and so there's less teaching in this gospel than in the other gospels, but there's plenty of teaching here. We'll hear a series of parables in chapter 4, another uh, uh, one in chapter 12. Jesus will give an extended uh, 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 discourse, discussion of the signs of the closing of the age in chapter 13, and, and his teaching is peppered throughout. So Mark will bring Jesus' teaching into view for us. We'll also get to see, pay attention to this, as you read through this gospel, notice how Jesus relates to people, 
How does he treat people? And there's quite the array. Jesus can be angry with people who don't want him to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus embraces these emotions that can be uncomfortable for us. He can be indignant with the disciples, the good guys. Jesus can be indignant with them. You know why he got indignant with them? Little kids were trying to get to Jesus and the disciples were shooing him away. Go away, go away. He's busy. He's a teacher. And it says Jesus was indignant with them. Jesus is remarkably compassionate. You see this in different places throughout the gospel. Chapter 5 is a, is, is a hot spot for his compassion. He sets free this man who's been bound by demons. This woman who's been bleeding for 12 years is healed just by touching him. And Jesus responds to a grieving father by raising his daughter from the dead. We'll note throughout the gospel how kind and welcoming Jesus is to women, to outsiders, to marginalized people, to blind men, to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to a famous and powerful figure like Jesus became. We'll hear Mark describe for us the titles that are given to Jesus. Christ, what does that mean? It's not his last name. It means Messiah, Son of God. We'll look more at that in a moment. King, King of the kingdom. King of the Jews, prophet, Lord, son of man. Let me just pause here. As a, as a follower of Christ, this encounter with Jesus isn't sort of a one-time thing that you do and then you come to faith and then you don't need to see him anymore. I, I, won't, <laughs> I need a fresh sighting of Jesus Christ every day. I do. I'm desperate for it. Not going to make it without freshly seeing who he is, what he does, what he says, why he's on the scene. And then remembering, that's his spirit that's in me. He's the one who's promised I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So whether you're here investigating for the first time what it looks like to be a Christian, or whether you've been walking with Christ for decades, may your time in the Gospel of Mark bring fresh encounter with the glorious person of Jesus Christ. We desperately need this. And Mark will most significantly highlight for us Jesus' cross work. How can you tell what's important to someone? Well, one way is you can listen to what they love to talk about, right? Think about someone that you know and think about what, what is it that they can't stop talking about? What is it that you can't stop talking about? What do you love to talk about? I am legendary within our family for talking about trees during hikes. The kids know if they go hiking with dad, buckle up because you're going to hear about trees. He's going to have his picture of this app out and we're going to be talking trees the whole time. And they've, they put up with me. They're very kind and patient. What can Mark, the gospel writer, not stop talking about? What does he want us to hear more than anything else? I want you to think about this story that he's given to us. Jesus was alive on earth and his earthly ministry for about 33 years. Mark doesn't tell us anything about the first 30. He focuses on the last three. 
Those three years, those 156 weeks of public ministry, Mark focuses on one of those weeks more than any other. Why? Mark takes six chapters of a 16-chapter work and focuses on one week of Jesus' life. Why? Well, Jesus himself tells us, Mark 10, 45, hear Jesus' words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we get 10 chapters in the Gospel of Mark of public ministry and chapters 11 to 16 are all in Jerusalem, all in the last week of Jesus' life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Get that outline. Hang on to that outline. That's how important the cross, the sacrificial death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is as he gives his life as a ransom for many saints who are gathered here today at RGC and people who are gathering all around the world and people who are still to come in to faith in Christ. One thing you'll notice as we go through this gospel is that the identity of Jesus is revealed slowly and gradually. Mark announces for us right here in chapter 1 who he is. He's the son of God. He's Jesus. He's the Messiah. Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and and believe. But we'll find that the people there on the scene are going to be slow to grasp what's happening. So so as you read through this gospel, I want you to to take note of the gradual unfolding of who Jesus is and and the, the regular calls that Jesus gives to people to not publicize him to keep secret or, or, or not say uh, what, what he's about. But we'll find there are these regular revealings of who he is. In chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, the Father says, this is my, you are my beloved son. In chapter 3, and in several other places, the demons, these unclean spirits, they know who Jesus is, and so they say, you are the son of God. Chapter 9, at the transfiguration, God will say with three disciples present, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Chapter 14, the high priest will ask Jesus, are you the son of God? And you know what? Jesus says, yes, I am. And then in chapter 15, the centurion who has just witnessed Jesus' death on the cross, a centurion who likely had witnessed many crucifixions and many deaths, he exclaims, surely this is the Son of God. This is a climactic moment in the Gospel of Mark. A Roman soldier knew that the emperors, the rulers of his empire, were given the title Son of God. This was a dangerous thing for a Roman soldier to say. This soldier, a representative of Rome, is saying that Jesus is actually the one with the imperial power. 
It's a remarkable and profound proclamation of who really is king, of who really is in charge, of who really is the Son of God. This gospel is about Jesus Christ. He is the news. He is the message. And by the end of this series, I hope that you'll be able to grasp more deeply than today who Jesus is. I hope we'll all be able to do that. So our primary goal, the first thing Mark is trying to do for us is to be able to see Jesus. Now, much more briefly, second, he wants us to hear Jesus' call to discipleship. Listen to Jesus, verse 14 of chapter 1. John was arrested. Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I want to ask you a question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Just like there are many ideas about who Jesus is, there are also many ideas about what it means to be a Christian, aren't there? Lots of ideas circulating in our world about that. You may, I wonder if you, if you think through, if you have a chance to talk with coworkers or students or neighbors or family members, friends about what it means to be a Christian, if you engage the media at all, we are constantly hearing many ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Well, real Christians have to vote for this candidate or that candidate. Christians are always against things, aren't they? Aren't Christians those people that are always opposed to this and hateful about that? Weren't Christians behind the Crusades? What's up with that? And, you know, we'll find even in this story, the, the disciples themselves in the Gospel of Mark, they're often confused and sometimes hard-hearted. Sometimes they cause more trouble than it seems like they might be worth. It's helpful for me as a disciple to be reminded of that. You know, if we want to understand what it means to be a Christian, we need the right beginning. We need the right starting point. And we start not with church history, not with popular ideas. We start with Christ. Let's let Jesus define for us what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian has something to do with the kingdom of God. For Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, where's your hand? It's right here. It's this close. How can it be there? How come the kingdom of God is there and Jesus is there at the same time? Because he's the king of the kingdom. He's announcing the kingdom is present with him. And he says, repent and believe. Believe in the gospel. So being a Christian has something to do with the kingdom of God and something to do with repenting and believing. Jesus has come as the king announcing the kingdom. Jesus has come with authority, divine authority, calling all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll see Jesus regularly reaching out to people and saying, you follow me, you follow me. And we'll hear him teach what that looks like in one of the key passages in the Gospel of Mark. I've already mentioned chapter 10 and verse 45. Here's another one, chapter 8. If your Bibles are open or available, skip over to chapter 8 and verse 34. This is the key passage on discipleship. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, this is a passage that you must have in view. Jesus, verse 34, it says, Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples. So he's got a, a wide range of people there. Some people who are already following him and some people who are just there as interested observers. And here's what he says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, first, Jesus is, is announcing it's open to anyone. If anyone would come after me, it's open to any person here today, any person watching online, any person that you encounter this week, any person alive on the globe today, if anyone would come after him. It, this is a universal invitation. And he says, let him deny himself. What does that mean? If you want to follow Jesus, you need to deny yourself. What does that mean? It means in order to gain him, there's something you need to leave behind. There's actually someone you need to leave behind. Let him deny himself. You know what he's getting at there? Human nature, fallen, as it resides in every person on the planet, puts us first instead of God. We usurp God's place. We live based on our own wisdom. We live life on our terms. We live life for our purposes. And that self-centered way of living, Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you've got to renounce that and leave that behind. You get off the throne of your life and Christ occupies that rightful place that your king should have. If anyone would come after him, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Oh, there's an appealing thought. Crucifixion has something to do with being a Christian. What's that all about? He's saying, look, Christians will not escape trouble, will not escape suffering or sin or pain. We're going to live lives like he lived. How did he live? He lived a life that was suffering and then glory. And that's the path of the Christian life. Now, there is joy. There's freedom. There's delight. There's forgiveness. But in the midst of it, we're in a fallen world. And we're carrying around remaining sin inside of us. And so if we're going to follow him, we deny ourselves. We take up our cross. And then we go. We follow him. What does that look like? We listen to him. We learn to... Think and act like him. And, and most importantly, most wonderfully, the greatest achievement of the cross is this. We are with him. He is with us. He removes all the obstacles and all the barriers to us being in a right and close and eternal relationship with him. Let him take up his cross and follow me to be with him. The greatest gift of the gospel is God himself giving himself to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a disciple is someone who denies themselves, taking up a cross to follow Christ. And we'll see as we read through the gospel, you might think, wow, God's on the scene. People are amazed and they're all going to fall down and worship him and follow him. And do they? No, they don't. We see these varied responses, sometimes surprising faith from unexpected people, sometimes unreliable faith from Jesus' disciples, and sometimes furious opposition. Roman and Jewish leaders conspire to kill the Lord of glory. What does it look like to follow him? Not everybody will. Not everybody wants to. But the call, the invitation is universal and open. 
Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Let's go. And so Mark is writing, not just to tell us about who Jesus is or what it means to be a disciple, but to urge us to join him in following Christ. If anyone would come after me, repent and believe. Come follow Christ. If you're in a place where you're, you're not sure what you think about Jesus, you haven't come to faith in Christ, but you're watching, you're gathering with us here, so glad that you're here. Please keep coming back. This is a series that will be great for you to understand and explore more of what it means to know and follow Jesus. If you've begun to follow Jesus, maybe recently or maybe a long time ago, may this, this series bring you joy and delight in seeing and delighting in this great Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus, the one who paid the ransom for our sins. And may this series equip you with tools and a sense of urgency to share this good news with other people, just as Mark has committed to sharing this good news with us by writing this gospel. We've mentioned Queen Elizabeth a couple times this morning. I'm going to mention her one more time. Her rule began in 1952. Hers was the longest reign of any sovereign in the thousand-year history of this monarchy. She brought stability and modeled a sense of duty and service. But as of last Thursday, her reign is over. What began in 1952 ended in 2022. So now I ask you, when will Jesus' reign end? You know, there's a funeral in this story, too. But that funeral wasn't the end. It was part of a new beginning. Because Jesus died and rose again. His tomb is empty. He's risen from the dead. The new creation has begun that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, hear this, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is one that shall not be destroyed. It will never end. It will never falter. It will never fail. It will never be destroyed because Jesus Christ is our everlasting, never-failing, never-ending, never-dying King. Praise be to his name. Let's share in the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Christ,